Let's pray. Father, with incredible anticipation of your powerful working through, the, through your word, uh, we trust that you are going to transform the way we think about who you are, who we are, and what we should do. So as we come across this text this morning that is specifically about widows, we ask that you would not only help us to care for widows in a way that brings you the most glory and honor, but also that we would find the underlying principles that create that care for widows and that we would apply those Christ-like principles into everything that we do in our life. So help us to see the reality of this text, the meaning, its purpose, its function, and to understand it in a way that magnifies your glory. Everybody in this room, Father, has come here this morning with different problems, maybe unique problems, and to each one of us, our problems feel like the heaviest problems because they're ours. And so only you can meet those problems with a solution. You tell us in Matthew eleven twenty eight that if we're tired to come to you, you give us rest because you're lowly and gentle, compassionate, loving, understanding, caring, gracious, merciful, forgiving and faithful. And so we bring our burdens to you now. Pray that they're removed from being a distraction, that that you would clear the runway for your word to set into our heart and mind and sanctify us by the powerful working of your word, which is like water that purifies our soul. We trust that you will do that work this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today's text, 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8, deals with how the church cares for widows. Now, and we'll address the same subject matter next week. I was going to just cover the entire section on caring for widows in just one sermon. And as I'm working through the text, there's just too much there to just do, you know, a big like 14 verse message. Uh, Not really my style anyways. Um, So I didn't want to force that. So we'll do verses 3 through 8 today. Next week we'll do verses 9 through 16. Uh, But what we find here is that this is such a unique uh, subject matter. Not every church has widows. And uh, a lot of churches do. And what we find here are directions and clarity for how the church should administer its care for widows. And then Paul's going to give us some clarity also on like what is a widow and what kind of widows should be cared for and what kind of widows don't need to be cared for by the church. So that's, a, that's part of the subject matter, which is interesting to consider that there are those that the church shouldn't necessarily take care of. And, and, and then <clears throat> within that concept of caring for widows, underneath it are these biblical principles that we are as a church, as believers, to apply to all of our relationships. And ultimately, what we find in this text is not just directives for taking care of widows, but also principles for actually caring about people. And, and so what we want to see happen in the way we care for widows or the way we care about anybody 
any need in the church, any person with a problem or a struggle or anything that they're facing that might be difficult or challenging or, you know, like uh, we want to care for widows. um, But let's say somebody in the church, um, not a widow, uh, maybe a a husband, a man who loses his wife. Are we going to look at that man and say, listen, dude, you'll be fine on your own. We're not going to care for you right now. We're too busy caring for widows. That doesn't make sense. No one in the church thinks that's how we should handle things. We would look at that man and go, how can we care for you? And the same principles we apply to dealing with widows would be the same principles we apply to dealing with that man. Or anybody in even less extreme situations that doesn't have to be a death in the family for this care to happen. Because underneath all of this are a few principles that are massively important to the way the church functions. One, being the love of Jesus Christ. And two, being the, our, our purpose as a church is to exalt and magnify and lift up and extol the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way that we're commanded to exalt the gospel is ultimate. Well, there's a lot of several ways biblically to exalt the gospel. But within this text... One of the principles of exalting the gospel is care and love. And so we want to care for people. And the interesting thing about caring for people is that in order to do it in a way that exalts the gospel requires not just caring for them, but actually caring about them. That requires compassion, grace, love, understanding. It requires a a truly biblical perspective on who Jesus is, what he was like, the nature and characteristics characteristics of God our Father and Christ, and then to imitate those things. I, I think about this all the time. I do not believe I am a naturally compassionate person. I am extremely empathetic. If my child comes up to me and says, Dad, I have a headache, I'm like, oh, so do I, instantly, like empathetic. I feel other people's problems. But compassion, a heartfelt like desire for people's struggles. That's not natural in me. And the compassion that I have in me is a gift of the Holy Spirit that God has developed in me through years of sanctification. And it's something I actually have to fight for. Now you might go, my pastor doesn't even have compassion. I have compassion, but listen, not all of us have all of the Godly characteristics figured out yet, right? But that doesn't mean we shouldn't display them. So what do we do? We have to work on them and we trust the Holy Spirit to develop them in us. And so here's the reality. If that were a natural gift in me, it wouldn't be me anyways. It'd be the Holy Spirit. And it's not a natural gift in me. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. So no matter what, whether it's natural or not, it's still the Holy Spirit who's producing that compassion. And that compassion has to drive all of our care for each other. And, I, and I, the re, one of the reasons I struggle with that is because I look at Jesus in the Bible. And he, what does he do? He, he goes to the crowd. And he looks out and he sees the crowd. And in the Gospels, it tells us he immediately. And this is a, a core feeling and reality about the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. He instantly, Scripture tells us, feels compassion for the crowd. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had this instantaneous love and compassion. When we closed our daycare here, uh, a lot of you don't maybe know about that. I'm not going to share the whole story, but it was kind of a, it was a, it was a big deal 
There was a daycare here. We owned the daycare, um, <clears throat> but we had to close the daycare because we believed that was what God was calling us to do. It was the best thing for building the kingdom of God in this, through this church was to shut down the daycare. Well, all the people who were part of the daycare, not all, but most of the people who were part of the daycare or used the daycare were very upset with that decision, understandably so. And there was this morning, there was a, a morning where we actually, uh, Brian and I as elders, came to the church. It was a Wednesday morning. And we stood at the front door. And as families came in, we had to explain to each family individually, one-on-one, there were probably 100 plus, 120 kids going using the daycare. That's like 60 people I had to talk to, you know, or, well, you know, it was about 100 people I had to talk to that morning. And only one of them was like, I think you're doing the right thing. The rest of them were like, I hate you. <laughs> they were not kind about it at all. Some of them were pretty, pretty severe. Um, I was having this conversation with this one woman. And she was really angry. And she was standing about this close to me. And she is yelling at me into my face. And as she's letting me have it, this thought just pours into my mind. And all I can think is, and it's got to be the Holy Spirit. He's telling me, have compassion. And I'm like, oh. Because when someone's yelling in your face, you're usually like, get away from me. You know, I don't like you. It's natural to be defensive and push back and maybe even argue back, right? And the Holy Spirit's like, compassion. And I'm just like, oh, okay, Jesus would, Jesus's heart would be broken for her pain. She's blaming me for causing the pain, but Christ would feel her hurt and understand it and respond to it appropriately. And I'm sitting there and I go, I need to feel that kind of love for this woman who's hurt, regardless of how she's treating me. And the moment I have that thought, she stops and she goes, I can see it on your face. I mean, at the very moment, it was mind blowing to me, the very moment that thought of compassion entered my mind, she stops talking and goes, I can see it on your face. You have no compassion for us. And I was like, yes, I do. (laughs) I really do. And I didn't say anything to her. I was just like, then I just kind of crumbled. I'm like, not only did God tell, you, tell me, Mark, you don't have compassion, but then he humbles me and says, you still don't have compassion. Or at least you don't show it. Like it was just a oh, humility for me. And it was from that time since that I've just kind of like been on this, my own personal journey of understanding how to feel compassion for others. And then you come across a text like how to deal with widows and is driven by this Christ-like compassion and love and understanding and, you know, empathetically trying to experience the pain that others are feeling and dealing with those pains in a way that doesn't just make you feel good about yourself, doesn't just serve the purpose of helping others. Helping others is not the primary motivation here. Our primary motivation in all the things that we do, especially in caring for others with compassion, is to exalt Jesus Christ. 
and to magnify his gospel, to show people this is what the gospel has done for you. This is what the gospel's done for me. Let me show you what the gospel's done for me. It's created in me a love and desire and compassion for your hurt. And, to, and it motivates me so much. The gospel's so magnificent in my life. It's so life-changing that I don't want to just have compassion for you. I actually want to get involved in your, in your problem, in your concern, in your heartache, and be a part of your solution. And what that does is it shows people, this is not how people normally act. This kind of sacrificial, compassionate, loving care that extends over, that, that doesn't, isn't just a moment where you go, oh, I'm praying for you. That's not care. Care is meeting their needs, continuing into meeting their needs, hanging in there, enduring sacrificially for others. So it's not just, hey, I'll pray for you. Yeah, you're having a hard time. I'll be thinking about you. It's continuing that. Going to their house, fulfilling their needs, getting their groceries, giving them the money they need, taking, taking them where they need to go. Like actually following through with continually enduring sacrificial compassionate love. That's how we show the gospel. Because that's how we see real gospel change in people's lives. And we show those who are receiving our care that the gospel has actually made that kind of change in our lives when we continue to enduringly sacrifice for their need. That way, our motivation can't be selfish praise or selfish exaltation or, or simply just feeling good about ourselves. Instead, the praise goes to Christ and his character that he's developing in us by the power of the Spirit to exalt the gospel, to show others Christ so that they would follow him and be faithful to him. And all of that magnifies God's glory and the joy you're looking for that you try to search for in self-exaltation, you get in being satisfied in Christ when you follow him. So that, there are principles underneath this caring for widows that are important. So, we're in chapter 5, verses 3 through 8, and Paul writes... In verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Notice that twice Paul uses the phrase truly widows, which we will, he will use again in verse 16. And the meaning of this phrase is profoundly important. What this phrase implies is that there are at least two kinds of widows. Widows who are truly widows and widows who are not, as Paul says, truly widows. Those who are not truly widows are widows in the sense that their husbands have died. But they are not truly widows in the sense that the church needs to care for them. We'll 
explore what that means. In verse 3, Paul says, honor widows. And the Greek word honor here means to support. So Paul certainly has financial provision or uh, practical provision for widows at the forefront of his mind, as the rest of the context clearly indicates that there is a practical nature of taking care of the physical earthly needs of these widows. So those who are truly widows must be provided for financially and practically and logistically by the church. But there is a caveat to the necessity of the church financially providing for widows. Since the requirement is that the church honors widows by providing for them, there then comes a requirement for the widows themselves if they expect the church to care for them. So it's two-sided. Both the widows and the church have certain requirements that determine how they engage in the care for the widow. And that requirement for the widows is genuine godliness. Verse 5 shows us this requirement. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is the description of a widow who fits the bill for the church's care. Paul goes on in verse 6 to show us the kind of widows that we are not required to provide for. Verse 6, she who is self-indulgent. Why? Paul says, because she is dead even while she lives. She is an unbeliever. Paul is basically saying that the church does not have a responsibility to care for widows who are not genuine believers, but only to those who truly love the Lord as evidenced by their devotion to Christ in obedience. Now, clarification, because this is important, because I don't want us to get wrong ideas about the Bible. Paul is not commanding us to ignore unbelieving widows. Nor is he teaching us that the church shouldn't care about unbelievers. There's a very important reality here that we see in verses 9 and 11. Paul uses this word in verses 9 and 11, which we'll cover next week. He uses the word enrollment. There is an actual church program for taking care of widows. And that program itself has certain requirements in order for widows to be enrolled into that program. And what Paul is teaching on is the guidelines for that program, for the structure of enrollment for the care for widows. So it's specifically within that context that he's saying that there are certain widows who do not fit the requirements to enroll into this care that the church provides for widows. That doesn't mean that the body of Christ, individual Christians, should not love unbelievers. Are unbelievers our enemies? No. Who's our enemies? Ephesians 6. Satan. And his army of demons, that's our enemy. In fact, Paul clearly clarifies in Ephesians 6, people are not the problem, Satan is. People are not our enemy, Satan is. So when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, how much more then should we love unbelievers who are not our enemies? So this is not a command that, hey, if that widow's not a believer... Kick her to the curb. That's not Paul's attitude. He's talking specifically about this structured program of enrollment for widows. And he's saying there are requirements to get in. How the church cares for those who are not truly widows, as Paul describes them, or as unbelievers, or those who don't, have a, don't actually have need, 
there are different qualifications for those things and different biblical principles that are applied there. But there is a structure that ensures that these widows who get enrolled are cared for. And there's a a qualification that they have to meet in order to enroll. And one of those qualifications is that they are genuinely followers of Christ, which, as I said before, will be evidenced by their devotion to Christ and their continual obedience. That doesn't mean perfection. It means that there's evidence of genuine faith. And this kind of like filtering process for how we care for widows is, it's not, it's similar to how our church uh, determines where our benevolence money goes. So we've gotten a benevolence account uh, that you give to, and we put that benevolence offering box on the welcome table the second Sunday of every month, and we ask that people give to it, and that benevolence goes into an account in the bank that the elders determine how it's used, and it's primarily used for people within the church and the needs that they have. So when there are people who have a financial struggle or a need or maybe need a vehicle and yours broke down or you know things like that or you can't pay a bill and need help or whatever, you come to the elders and we determine the kind of help that's given. And that's one of our responsibilities is to manage those kinds of functions within the church. And when someone has a need and asks for financial help with that need, the elders have to evaluate the use of church funds for that person based on the evidence we see in their life of faithfulness to Christ and his church. Now, that might seem picky. That might seem like, well, who are you? You get to just stand there and judge all of us. And, and, and in judging us, you get to determine what you, how you help us or not. Well, that's not our attitude. But that is true. Like, church leadership has a responsibility to make sure that, and not just the church leadership, others as well. It's not just the elders who do this. with Other church, because we could just as biblically create a, a um, committee or something that manages the benevolence and the elders just hand that off to other people who are not elders and say, you guys determine who gets what. We could do that. So it's not just about the elders, but the elders would be overseers of that, responsible for where that money is dispersed and how it goes, and we'd be trusting that committee to do those things. And so... Uh, we have to evaluate who we're giving this money to. And there's a reason for this. It might initially sound like a lack of compassion, that you're just determining who's the most holy, gets the most money. That's not at all what it is. What this does is it protects the body of Christ from spending its resources on people who are only here to get something from the church and then leave once they've tapped us as a resource for their own self-indulgence. And that is why Paul has an enrollment for widows, because it filters out those who are taking advantage of the church, while also ensuring that genuine widows or truly widows are truly taken care of. I've been a pastor for 18 years or something like that. I'm telling you, the number of phone calls I get per week, the number of people who walk in that door per week, that I've, been, that I've experienced that weekly for years People who don't know us, don't go to our church, aren't a part of our life, and come to us and say, I need help. If we helped everyone, we would have no money. There has to be some sort of structure. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about the requirement for order in the church. And this is one of the things that requires order. We have to be wise with our funds. We can't just give to everybody and call it love and compassion. It can actually be foolish. 
So we have to have some form of evaluation. And what Paul is saying is when you consider widows, let's make sure that the primary widows who are getting the first amount of care are those who are actually a part of building God's kingdom in your local body. It doesn't mean that that care doesn't extend beyond those widows. But it ensures that those widows first are being taken care of. We see this principle in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul says that the whole purpose of church is for the growth of the church. A lot of churches have their priority being evangelism and outreach to the community and to the world. None of us are going to argue with the importance of those realities. Evangelism and reaching the world with the gospel of Christ is absolutely a mandate for the church. And praise God that he makes churches and pastors and elders and, and, and believers have a great uh, desire to do so. And then they do so and the gospel spreads. Praise God for that. However, not to take that away, but that's not the priority of the believer. The priority of the gathering of the body of Christ as a unit, is our maturing into what Paul says in Ephesians 4 is the mature manhood of, and measure of manhood of Christ Jesus. So Christ's perfect, full maturity is our goal. And that's why he says to the church, I gave pastors and apostles and prophets and evangelists so that they would sanctify you and you would grow into Christ's likeness. That's the reason that's the priority. Your individual spiritual growth that you experience with the body of Christ, so it's individual and it's together, it's united, so it's unity and individuality, which is what makes unity so powerful is that we have individuality. If we are individually, as a unit, being sanctified and growing into Christ's likeness, and that sanctifying maturity is happening in each of us, then evangelism and outreach and spreading the gospel of Christ will be the natural product of the church. We don't have to create an evangelism program and make that our priority. We need to prioritize you and me being like Christ, growing in the word and in prayer. That's why we have 47,000 Bible studies a week here. Little exaggeration, but we, this is why we, we, we encourage you to be in the word. So that we can grow. And if you do, if you grow, what, what I've seen in this church are individuals growing to such an extent that they're doing things without me saying a word to them that a lot of churches have to build structured programs for. The number of people I see in this church sacrificially giving to the needs of others without ever, me never even knowing about it, I find out about it later, is fantastic. Most people will just run to their pastor. Hey, this person has a need. Will the church take care of them? Instead, we got people who are going, I'm the church. I, I need to take care of them. And I'm like, that's the product of us individually and united growing in our maturity into Christ-likeness. And that, let me just tell you, as a shepherd, just makes my heart so happy. I love seeing you guys grow. It is the most satisfying thing in the world. You ever watch your kids do, you're not my kids, okay? I get that. I'm not saying you're my kids at all. I am not, uh, I am just as you are with a different role, okay? I'm an under shepherd. Christ is the pastor and the shepherd of this church, all right? I am just his instrument for you on this earth in this time. But, so I'm not calling you my kids, but you ever watch 
your kids do something that you didn't even have to tell them to do and they did the right thing and you're just like, did I just watch my kid do something totally righteous and godly without me saying a word to them? And it's just naturally came out of them and it's like such a satisfying reality. That's how I feel about you guys when you do those things. It just makes me so happy. And, and I know it makes you happy too because that's the reason you're doing it. So, This also teaches us an important Christian principle, which is that as much as Christ's love should pour out of us and into others, and that love should be revealed in God's people sacrificially giving of themselves and giving of their resources to the point of almost exhausting our own security, we are also taught to be wise with our finances and with all of our resources. Now, that is not natural for me. I am more prone to just say, give it all up. I look at the first century church, early in the first century church, right off the bat, right after Pentecost, people are giving everything they have to their own detriment for the sake of others. Now, that, that is a unique time in history. There are unique, qualifi- uh, unique characteristics about the early church that may or may not apply to us in particular ways, and I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, what you saw in those people was a genuine spirit-led passion to exalt Christ by caring for the needs of others. Why, why, were, they that, why were they that way? Because they were filled with the spirit. Filled with what spirit? The spirit of Christ. Meaning they were expressing Christ-like characteristic of compassion and love and sacrifice. And so I am more prone to tell you and to command you, give everything you have for lost people, for needy people, for broken people, for hurt people. Sacrifice. Even give up your house, give up your car, give up your bank account, give up your retirement. Give it all up. You be poor. You be broken. You have nothing. So that they, that people, those people who are in need can have everything. And you be like Paul. Be content when you have it all and be content when you have nothing. And all of us should sacrifice everything we have so that other people can have what they need to show them the power and the magnitude of the content nature of being in Christ. That is Christian security. That is powerful. That shows people the power of the gospel. I'm willing to not only give up everything I have, I will even die for you. I will give up my life. Hebrews 12 says, why are you complaining about all of your struggles when you have not suffered to the point of yet shedding blood like Jesus did? You haven't died yet. Keep going. That's the point. So that's my nature, to be to preach to you that way. And, and believe me, there are times when I have, and there are times that I will. But what Paul is teaching us now is temperance. Just hold on a second. Before we just start throwing all our money at people, let's have a, a system that ensures that that money, which you are a steward of, is used in a way that most magnifies the gospel, sanctifies the body of Christ, so that those believers in the church would actually grow and mature, and then they could spread out and care for all the other needs, instead of the church just forking over cash. That's a big, that's a big difference. And what that wisdom does, it slows us down and enables the individuals who are part of the church to give appropriately and therefore sanctify them so that more people in the end are actually reached or their needs are met. So there is wisdom 
in how we manage our finances. And this wisdom ensures that Christians are not just blindly and stupidly giving away all that they have just because they... Because if they did, then, then the reality is the vultures would flock to those people or to that church and just consume all their resources that are meant to exalt the gospel. But instead, they get spent on self-indulgent unbelievers who are scamming churches for money. So there is a balance that we must implement when helping others. And that balance will always reveal a genuine and sacrificial mentality that is centered on our love for Jesus. So even in the balance, there is still great sacrifice. There's still gospel expression. And we reveal Christ's love by sacrificially giving and wisely restraining. And that restraint doesn't mean people don't get cared for, but that they are cared for in the right way. And that is really at the heartbeat of this text, is that they're cared for in the right way. And we've used this example many times, and we find many examples of this throughout Scripture. But the Israelites in the wilderness, they built a golden calf. And not because they wanted to worship a cow, because they wanted to worship God. They thought that the calf itself, made of gold, was, and it was an idol, and God hated it. But they were like, well, our hearts want to worship God, but we need an image to look at when we do so. So let's build this golden calf. And God said, I don't, you can't tell me that your hearts wanted to worship me while you worship me in a way I told you not to. You don't get to worship God the way you want. You don't get to do whatever you want the way you want and then say, well, my heart was in the right place or God knows my heart. That's not acceptable because regardless of your heart, God has instructions in the Bible that clarify how we live and function. We don't get to worship God our way. If we took that concept and applied to the church, we could have lyrics in our music that say, Satan is our God. Yay, yay, yay. We love Satan. And then be like, well, it doesn't matter what the words are. My heart is thinking about Jesus. Would that be appropriate? No. But that's where the logic leads in that thought process. Noah, that's not an idea. Stay away. (laughs) I feel bad even pretending to sing it. Okay, so... The point is, this is why, one of the reasons why, specifically speaking of music, we pick particular songs that come from particular people and artists and ministries, and why we don't pick particular artists and ministries that produce songs, even if those songs themselves have lyrics in the song that are technically biblical, but they come from a ministry that, I, that we, as a church, don't believe or trust or maybe even think are, is heretical. So, so, there is, so we look at that and we go, there's a right way to worship. And God has instructions and clarity on things like doctrine. So we're going to apply those doctrinal truths to the way we pick music and the songs we sing and how we do them. And we apply that in everything in life. And so just wanting to do it the right way isn't good enough. This is why Paul's giving us these instructions. He's saying, oh, your hearts are going to want to take care of widows. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. That is a general statement about, hey, go and honor the widows. Now, if that's all Paul ever said, there would be no rules and everybody would be honoring widows however they want. Instead, Paul's like, hey, honor widows, but let me tell you how. And if you don't do it this way then it doesn't matter where your heart's at. It's still wrong. So there's this requirement that we are are taking care of widows in the right way. And what Paul's saying the right way is that it's one, sacrificial, and two, wisdom restrained. Or I should say, wisdom filtered. 
Because wisdom might not lead to restraining funds, wisdom may lead to giving funds. Now in verse 7, Paul commands Timothy to command these things to the church. Why? Well, Paul tells us why. Verse 7, so that, so he says, command these things as well. Why? So that, so the so that indicates the reason, so that they may be without reproach. So who is the they? Who may be without reproach? Any and all whom the matter involves. This is the widows. This is the family of the widows. This is the church itself. Um, This is the elders. This is anybody involved in the care for the widows or the concern for the widows or any element in which. so, So he's talking about them all. And the clause, and I know it's because the clause in the Greek, this clause, uh, so that they may be without reproach, is an indefinite clause, meaning it is to be taught anytime, all the time, not just when problems arise. That's the concept here, is that he's telling, Paul's telling Timothy, don't just deal with the problem when it happens. Make this a part of the doctrine that you teach so that when problems come, the church is already equipped with the knowledge and awareness and structure to take care of widows when they're needed. And to manage and filter all these processes in a biblical way. So this, this means that Timothy would have to teach the entire church, just like I'm doing today, on widows and all of these instructions. And so Timothy is to teach and institute and follow through with this teaching that if a widow wants to be cared for, she must be a faithful follower of Christ. So that... The widows recognize that if they want the church help, they must be genuinely faithful to Christ. Now, I know that sounds kind of like, I think a word that some people might use, and this would be the wrong word to use here, but would be maybe like legalistic. Like, oh, you have to do good in order to get help, right? This idea that like God only helps those who help themselves kind of thing, right? If, if these widows want help, They have to be genuine believers. And we all agree that genuine believers are known by their fruit. It's evidenced in the way they live their lives. It's not any different for the widow. There should be evidence of faithfulness to Christ in her life that qualifies her for this care. And not only that, but she actually has to be in genuine need. Meaning her family isn't stepping up to help her. So this isn't some sort of trick like, hey, get the the widows to be obedient by telling them you're not going to help them unless they're good people. Like you're going to hang money in front of their face like, oh, you better do good or you don't get any. Not at all Paul's motivation. He is saying that by teaching this truth that widows must be faithful to Christ, it is one of God's sovereign means to ensure that every group in the church, including the widows, are remaining faithful. It's an encouragement to faithfulness. And by Timothy commanding widows to be faithful in order to get help from the church or in order to qualify for this enrollment, righteousness is produced in those who are truly widows, thus magnifying the gospel not only in their life but in the church life as they help these faithful widows. Now another requirement for a widow to, uh, to be what Paul calls a true widow <clears throat> is that she must not have family members who can take care of her. Now we see this in verse 5 as Paul describes true widows as one who is, quote, all alone, meaning there's no one helping them. There's no family member there to take care of them. So her need is genuine. There's no help. She's all alone. And then in verse four, Paul says, if a widow has children, 
or grandchildren, let them, the children or grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. If a widow has children who can help their widowed mother, they are required to do so. Not only was that a biblical requirement, but it was also a cultural requirement. So if there's a believing widow and she's got an unbelieving son, the church could easily go to the unbelieving son and say, hey, you should take care of your mom. The culture would expect that as much as the church does. So it wasn't crazy for Paul to make this command. And it doesn't just have to be their children. It could be any family member. uh, And we see that from verse 8 because in verse 8, Paul talks about it. He says, especially if you're part of that person's household, meaning cousins and uncles and aunts and grandchildren and whatever, all of those extended family members also have this requirement to take care of their widowed family members. And then Paul says in verse 8, but especially if they're in your household, then the requirement's even stronger or more clear. And this means that before the church just takes on the care of a widow, the church must do its due diligence and call the family to care for their widowed mother before the church spends its resources. And if you're thinking, that sounds kind of harsh, like the church is going to, if it maybe sounds a little bit like, no, you can't have our money, you have to take care of your own first. That's not the attitude that's conveyed here. Down in verse 16, Paul says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. What Paul's saying is don't spend your resources on those who don't need it because there are those who do need it. And those who don't need it are those who have family members who can provide. So the church has a responsibility to call upon those family members and say, you need to take care of your mom. And this truth is revealed even more prominently and severely in verse 8 when Paul talks about these other family members and their role in providing for uh, their widowed family member. Paul says in verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, again, that kind of sounds like, um, maybe some of this sounds like, God only helps those who help themselves. You better be a good person if you want help. Oh, you better take care of yourself. Oh, you better make sure that someone else is taking care of you. It's not at all the concept that's conveyed. It is, that is actually this idea of God only helps those who help themselves. That's a totally unbiblical concept. What Paul's actually teaching is that there is an order required in the church and that, that this order honors God. And here, the order is that the church should not be burdened with the problems of widows who have family who can help them. So that the church can be burdened with the problems that are genuinely problems. And this is... And this point is so important that Paul literally says that if a widow has a family member who can help them, but those family members do not help them, and that family member claims to be a believer, Paul is saying that person is not a believer. They're actually worse than an unbeliever, worse than an unbeliever, and worse because unbelievers, heathens, and pagans in the first century still took care of their widows. So what a detriment to the image of Christ and the glory of the gospel that the church is supposed to represent when the church itself doesn't take care of its widows. Even the pagans take care of their widows. How much more should the church? That's Paul's point. So he's saying, you look worse than an unbeliever if you don't care for your widows. So like, 
there is this very heavy onus that lands on family members who have widows in their family to take care of those widows so that the church doesn't have to. This isn't just like a, hey, let's just check with the family and see if they can help before we help. That's not at all. Paul's looking at this and saying, this is gospel-centric. This is important to the advancement of the gospel and the health of the church and the functionality of structure and order and worship in the body of Christ. That the body of Christ looks at the widow and says, we want to take care of you, but first, your family has to. Your family claim, claim to be Christians. And if they're Christians, they need to take care of you. Because if they don't, they're going to damage the reputation and image of the gospel and of Jesus Christ in this culture. Because the heathens are going to look at you and look at them and say, even Christians don't take care of their widows. Why would I want to be a Christian? I'll just keep worshiping Zeus. Like, so Paul's saying, this isn't about not helping widows from the church. This is about the image of the gospel of Jesus Christ being conveyed in all of its proper ways. In some cases, in a lot of cases, through the family members taking care of their widows. So, what does all of this mean to us? Well, I have three things. And all of them center around this idea of caring. Number one, we need to care for widows and we need to apply our care, not just to widows, but to everyone. But we must do so in a way that lines up with Paul's specifics about this enrollment for widows, which we'll cover the enrollment next week. And, and, and that whether we're caring for widows or we're caring for others, no matter what, when we have compassion and care for other people, that we must care for others according to God's word. That is elemental. It is absolutely paramount that our care is done in a biblical way. We can't just apply our care however we want. Now, granted, in life, there's a gazillion different ways to care for people. And every time you desire to care for somebody, doesn't mean you have to check with your church leadership and go, is it okay if I go give that person a hug because they look really sad and I want to make sure I'm doing it right? You know, like... The point is that there are a lot of opportunities for you to care for people just naturally expressing that care. But when it comes to the way that the church functions, and as Paul's giving instructions to the pastor of the church for how those, these, these organizational structures function, it's important that it's done biblically. It's done God's way. And so our care has to be according to God's word. Number two... We learn a lot about the character and attitude and disposition of the church to show those in need the love of Christ. Underneath all of these logistics for how the church handles widows is this flowing river of Christ's love that should be motivating all of the logistics, all of the practicalities, all of the enrollment process, all this stuff. Because it's very easy in our humanity to have a program. This is why I hate programs in the church. And I don't want programs in the church. Although sometimes we have to biblically. But I don't want to have programs. I want to have natural, organic believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they're in the word, communing with God. Empowered in their prayer life. And uniting together as a body. Fellowshipping and serving and obeying and giving and dying and sacrificing. And doing all these things for Christ. And from that, the natural Christ-like by the power of the Spirit pours out of them into others and they just care. They care for people. 
And they do all the things that scripture commands. And, I, and we don't have to as church leaders go, hey, we've got to have an evangelism program. Oh, we've got to have a caring for people program. Oh, we've got to have a uh, managing your emotions program. Oh, we've got to have a caring for divorced people program. That we shouldn't need those things. We shouldn't need them. I'm not saying that having them is bad. Okay? Having those things isn't bad. I'm just saying there's a better way. And the better way is us growing in Christ-likeness and the Spirit himself producing out of us organic, natural Christ-likeness that changes the entire nature and culture of a church. That, when people walk in the door to a church and they experience that, that's the kind of feeling and mood and atmosphere that people walk into and go, I want to be a part of this. This feels like real. This doesn't just feel like we're playing church. Like we got a big... They got a big band and smoke machine and I don't know <laughs> and and all these programs and structures and great children's ministry. I went to a church once and they had um, the 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 children's room. One of the six children's rooms that they had was bigger than our entire church and I was our entire church building. And I was like, <sighs> I can't even wrap my mind around the kind of thing that's going on here at this church, right? Um, and and I think about that. And I'm like, they have. I guarantee they have, and I know because I talked to somebody there and asked about it, they have all these programs and they're all so structured. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong. And when you have 2,000 people at your church, you probably need a lot more structure than you do when you have 50, right? But what a great blessing from the Lord that our church is the size it is so we don't have to implement programs because I don't want you getting in the habit and the thought process of do we have a program for this? Do we have a program for this? We're robots. We've got to follow these rules. I'd rather you be so inundated with Christ, so filled with Christ, that it is the natural product of who you are. That, that will change lives. That will affect people. That will feel satisfying. People want to be a part of that. That will draw people to Jesus Christ. Because instead of going to, like, you know, if we had an evangelism program structured and said, all right, guys, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, we're going to meet at the church, and we're going to go around town and share the gospel with people. You'd be like, okay, i got to show up to church. i, I got to evangelize. What do I say? What do I say? Like, it's a job. That's, that's not going to produce anything. Maybe. It might produce something. And God still works in those things, so totally could. But... What I'd love to see is not having something so structured and then people getting saved because you can't help but to be like Christ, to talk about Christ, to exalt Jesus, to share his word, to pray with people, to meet them in their need, to care for them, to have compassion for them, to show them mercy and love and grace and forgiveness and kindness and show them the characteristics and nature and qualities of Christ just by relating to them. Just by running to them in the store or at the street or the people you work with or friends or families or whatever. And just building genuine Christ-like relationships and showing these people what the nature of Jesus Christ looked like. Look how long it took the apostles to understand what Jesus was all about. Years. And they were walking with the king himself. It's going to take time for people to see the genuine nature of Jesus Christ in you. Build relationships. That's where the Christ-likeness will naturally and organically pour out of you and change lives. That's the kind of church structure I want to be a part of. And from that, there must be this flowing river of the love of Christ. Or it won't work. And finally, three. 
Even with that gospel-driven, self-sacrificial attitude, we must wield it with wisdom. Not to prevent widows from getting help, nor to hoard church money, but rather so that as an expression of the gospel, we use our resources for those who are going to benefit the purpose of the church, which is to glorify God in Christ by all of us maturing into Christ-likeness through this process of sanctification. Basically, what Paul's saying is, Invest your money wisely, right? Don't just put your money at ev- into everything. Put your money to where it's going to produce or return to you more. And this concept is all throughout the Gospels. Jesus talks about this all the time. He talks about that the seed that is planted in good soil returns a hundredfold. There's a, an investment and a return. There's a return on the investment, an ROI, return on investment that is benefiting the church when it pours its resources the right into the right things. And, and Jesus even shares the parable of the talents and then these, uh, these three different workers get money and one of them buries it and he's the bad one because he doesn't return more. And others went and got and invested the money and got more back and they say, I have more for you. And the other one said, well, I, I just buried it because I didn't want to lose it. And that one got disciplined because he didn't grow the money, this concept of investment. And Jesus is talking about money there as, as, the, as the parable, as the illustration. But the underlying principle that Jesus is ultimately talking about is we need to invest in the kingdom of God to produce an investment and a return on our investment. And so it's the same concept here. We want our care and time and energy and money to be returned with interest. We want there to be actual growth. So let's put our finances and time and efforts into the things that are actually going to produce the best return. Now, we can't always know that. And also, we have to balance that with this biblical principle in Galatians 6 that we do not grow weary in doing good. So we're always doing good. We're not holding back doing good. We're just giving it in a wiser way. Wielding the gospel and wisdom doesn't mean holding back sacrifice. It means making each sacrifice meaningful. Jesus could have skipped all those years of public ministry and just died three years earlier without going through all those hard things. And, you know, he'd still be God and his sacrifice would still be, I guess, purposeful. Um, but it wouldn't be as nearly as impactful. In fact, it, I mean... Instead, Christ used the Spirit's wisdom to ensure that he endures years of suffering to faithfully wait for his Father's timing and dine at his appointed time, therefore making his death most meaningful. So also the church must wield the gospel in a similarly meaningful way, ensuring that we are sacrificing our resources at the right time and in the right way according to God's commands, so to glorify God in the most profound and meaningful way, which requires wisdom. Even sacrifice can have foolishness woven in it sometimes, and that is why God gave us his spirit, so that we could implement his wisdom and how we operate his gospel to ensure his gospel gives him the most glory in us. Let's pray. Lord, we truly do want to honor you the best that we can in the way that we care for others. 
And if we're going to err, let us err on the side of grace. Let us err on the side of sacrifice. Let us err on the side of compassion and giving. But before we err, let us know your word and follow it and listen to it and read it and know it, study it and be prepared for what you have planned for us. As a church, Lord, I know, we know that you demand compassion and love for others. Help us to grow in that compassion and love by being in your word and being in real real prayer and in your real presence in such a way that your spirit produces in us this organic natural product of care and compassion and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness so that other people would feel and experience the gospel of Christ through us only you can truly produce that that's my desire for this body Lord this is why you've called me here and this is what we want so that you would be honored and glorified and in your glory we'd be satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.